Brock Bastian is a professor at the University of Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences. He is the author of the 2018 book, The Other Side of Happiness, which focuses on how pain, difficulty, and risk are necessary to achieve happiness. Bastian has also published more than 100 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters, and has been featured in various publications, including The Economist, The New Yorker, Time, and New Scientist. Bastian has also received the Wagner Theoretical Innovation Prize and has been recognized by the Australian Psychological Society and Society of Australian Social Psychologists. Brock Bastian, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks, Mia. Good to be here. So we've been enjoying your book, The Other Side of Happiness, Embracing a More Fearless Approach to Living, and you'll be sharing a passage with us to, to give us a taste of the book. Yes. So I thought I'd read the first paragraph or so for you. Positivity has become the new crack of the upwardly mobile and the new pill for the downtrodden and depressed. Coaches, consultants and psychologists have been pushing the message that to live well, we need to seek out the positive and reframe the negative. In today's world, feeling happy is no longer simply a state of mind. It has become a marker of mental health and success. On the flip side, pain and sadness are viewed as signals of failure and of sickness. If we're not happy, then there is something wrong with us and we need to fix it. It is no wonder that the pain-killing and antidepressant markets, already worth billions of dollars, continue their rapid expansion. We've come to treat even commonplace experiences of pain and sadness as pathological, as things that need to be medicated and eradicated. Yeah, exactly. A signs of failure. And this has led to so many things like the opioid crisis. So mm. it's, it's not just about our comfort. That kind of thinking can lead to greater pain. Well, that's right. Yes. Our book is really about thinking how our value systems around our emotional worlds probably cause some problems for us in terms of managing those worlds appropriately. And a tendency to value positive and happy emotion and to see that as normative or important and to devalue those more negative or unpleasant emotional experiences that we have. And I think that that tends to cause us to, to respond to them poorly, as I try to illustrate there, even at a societal level, but also as individuals in terms of our own emotional functioning as well. Yes, and there, there's an old tale that there, there once was a man whose life was full of so much happiness that no stories could be told about it. And really, you know, who wants a life like that? If, if no yeah. story can be told about you, it really means in, in a sense that you haven't lived. Well, that's right. Many of the things that make us interesting are often the foibles or the other sorts of non-positive elements. And yeah, I mean, a life worth retelling. I think one of the things that we find in our research is even when people recall their own lifetimes, what are memorable moments for them. They don't recall just the pleasant ones. They also recall the painful ones because both of those have contributed to the narrative of making them who they are. Exactly. It's how we learn as how we overcome our problems or challenges and really how we define who we are. Yes, that's right. And I, I guess it's only by overcoming those or facing into them or even having any problems or challenges in life. I mean, if you had a life that had no problems or challenges, you wouldn't know what you'd be capable of or you wouldn't know many of your own personal qualities. I guess the, the bigger argument I suppose I make in my book is that, in fact, you might not even know what happiness is because it would all be, you know, single signal of just constant pleasure, which would become nothing at all eventually. So we do need this disruption sometimes, this variation, something to push against or to bounce off in order to experience, I think, meaning, happiness, fulfillment in life. Yeah, otherwise we're entering into that brave new world territory where everything is drugified. I guess it's important to ask then how you define your own happiness. What does that mean? Is happiness that linked to your purpose in life? How do you define happiness? 
Well, then there are different ways to define happiness in terms of the way we might think about it in terms of philosophically or the literature. There's what we call sort of hedonic ways of thinking about happiness, which is really just how much positive affect you're experiencing, how much pleasure or satisfaction are you experiencing in your life at any given point in time. And then there's a broader approach to thinking about it, which is that it includes things like meaning and social connection with other people. And so that broader sense of happiness isn't just all about assessing how much positive feelings I have or positivity of my thinking at any particular point in time. I might be establishing social connection, but also in, in contexts where I'm not feeling happy or I might be achieving or purposeful and meaningful outcomes, but not necessarily through ways that are making me immediate immediately feel good or positive. Maybe they are hard, difficult. I suppose that eudaimonic approach, which is probably the one I would um, tend to focus on because it does avoid that tendency to constantly assess our own emotional states. And I think that itself become a bit of a trap. In fact, you know, the more we focus on our own happiness, sometimes the less happy we become when we're talking about that kind of hedonic level or type of happiness. And you, of course, got cultural aspects of this and different cultures have different expectations of happiness. And you mentioned whether it's an individual or a collective, because I'm often working with students as you are, what are your reflections on the different interpretations or expectations of happiness in different countries? I do think, and we're certainly we find that there are cultural differences in, in our own work. I think that Western cultures, I think Australia is up there, I think America is up there in terms of countries where there is this sort of value placed on positivity and happiness. I think there are also national level surveys of this now, which I think is important in some ways. It's important to measure some of that subjective well-being as well as the economic. But there are some cultures, I think, where the appropriateness of expressing negative emotion um, is perhaps seen as less appropriate. You know, there are other cultures like in Eastern Europe, for example, where people might feel quite comfortable expressing negative emotion to each other and not infrequently. So we do know there are differences in the ways that people respond and think about that. We also know that across East Asian cultures that people respond differently to the negative emotions in, in as much as they don't see them as quite so much of a threat to their positive or happy emotions in life. They sort of, the yin and the yang, they see that as two sides of the same story as things that can coexist, whereas in the West we tend to sort of feel like if I'm sad, well, I'm not happy. And so we certainly know that there are certain ways of thinking about the world that appear to mean that people are more comfortable responding or managing their negative emotions or unpleasant emotions in some East Asian cultures, for example, compared to Western cultures. So I think there are quite a few different ways in which cultures are different in that respect. Yeah. But there's certainly cultural differences, absolutely. And also with the Indigenous cultures, that's also this acceptance of pain or indeed these very healing rituals are so core to the culture. I remember being in Morocco, which of course is a culture that fasts collectively, and I wasn't going through a fast, but we were at celebrations and there was this big dance and everyone was so happy because they love dancing. And suddenly this young woman, she, she falls down in front of me. This is the first time I had seen this. Maybe you've seen this kind of trance. And her mm. friends, you know, gathered around her and they were concerned but it wasn't it wasn't a big deal and someone said to me oh this happens all the time she's taken by the spirit it's fine and then others would just continue dancing around her so apparently one or two people always do this and I don't know what it does but this is this release and again this kind of acceptance that you need this uh, pain or cleansing during moments of happiness yeah 
Well, interesting point. I think certainly use of pain in rituals and in the sort of ritual practices, I think that has a range of functions that are attached. We certainly know that sometimes going through a painful ritual increases the connection or function where you need to go through a particular ritual in order to become a member of that group and that pain signifies the importance or the meaning and, and actually creates connection for you. Again, in, in some indirect way, that might be related to happiness. I suppose on that side of things, it's perhaps more just using those examples to understand that often we do we do seek out in a number of different ways unpleasant and painful experiences because there are benefits to them. You know, if you look at our everyday choices, often we are making choices to face into difficult, challenging, even painful experiences. And that suggests there is some benefit in those experiences. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. Those rituals wouldn't have persisted over time if they didn't have have some sort of functional value to add or they weren't effective in achieving what what they're supposed to be achieving so i i guess what that does tell us is that there is some value to our pain and sometimes there's a lot of value in our negative experiences as well our unpleasant experiences and actually just to feel appropriately to feel and to go through that period whether it is mourning or sadness mm. or loss that's how you feel alive and on the other side of that so much of our experience have become drugified so we have social media which you've written about the toxic positivity culture and i can certainly see that there but you mm. also see that much of social media online is driven by it's incentivized around anger Yep. And the dopamine rushes that you get there. So we're protecting ourselves. And you've written about how some parents or parenting techniques seek to avoid the pain their children yep. encountering challenges that way. And then they're not really prepared. And then you throw them into a pit of strangers. Yeah. Social media, it's full of all these triggers and pain and fueled by anger. It's a kind of lawless territory. One of your thesis is that we have to prepare ourselves for pain. And then sure. you have these platforms which are just potentially full of it. Life is like that. Certainly on social media, it plays out in certain ways, I think, because of anonymity and other kinds of factors. There's a lot of potentially cyberbullying, angry trolling, etc. We can choose to step back from that. And I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of benefit from being exposed to that. But certainly in life in general, we can expect that there's going to be some difficulties, some hardships, some, some ups and downs. And I think when we haven't had any exposure to that, when we haven't had the chance to build our repertoire of tools and strategies to be able to manage difficult, uncomfortable, unpleasant, painful experiences in life well, that means that when we do come across those, we tend to fall over. We don't know what to do. We haven't we haven't sort of developed the resilience, if you like. I often use the analogy of sort of biological immunization. If you want to build your immune system, if you want to build your capacity to respond to something in the environment, a pathogen then you give yourself a little bit of that through some sort of immunization process. And that small amount of that allows you to build the defenses you need to deal with more of it down the track. And you can talk about psychological immunization in the same sort of way. So having some exposure, having to deal with some of those difficult events, difficult emotions in life is really important to, to build that resilience, to build the capacity to be able to respond well to some of those difficult experiences. And in your own upbringing, what were some lessons that your parents passed on to you and challenges? And Yeah, well, my father grew up in Western Australia and he would talk about being barefooted a lot. And, uh, and back in those times, you, you would have some freedoms, but also you take some risks. And I think in terms of my growing up, I certainly 
had substantial freedom to take risks as well myself. I think that's probably part of what the parenting component is about, is letting our kids take some risks. Of course, you don't want them to take silly risks, but you do want them to know that they are able to take some risks and also to manage the fallout if it doesn't go so well. I think that's really critical. I mean, one of the things we know about depression is people stop taking risks when they become depressed. And so to, part of the treatment for depression is actually get people to start taking some risks in life again. So we do need to take risks in life to be happy and healthy. So I think that's certainly in my upbringing in particular, I'd say my father was not risk averse, was happy to take on a few challenges. Sometimes, you know, that didn't always work out, but that was part and parcel. And again, supporting your kids to, to take those calculated risks in life and to feel they've got the resources to do so, I think is really important. Leading up to your publication, could you describe some of the research you've done in your laboratory on the kind of science behind the happiness and pain kind of collaboration? Yes, so we've certainly found in our research that when people perceive that there's a certain pressure to try and present in a particular kind of way, perhaps a bit like the way that Mia was describing before with the constant expression of positivity, that actually can be quite counterproductive. And so we find that people who feel that kind of pressure or who report those sort of social norms in their environment, that can be quite a central feature of their depressive network of symptoms. So it seems to be rather than helping people to be happier, it seems to be making people sadder and more depressed. We also find that when people hold those sorts of expectations or believe that others hold those expectations of them, and when they do feel those negative emotions that we know we all are going to feel from time to time, well, they feel more low Lonely, more disconnected. And of course, it's not great to feel lonely and disconnected. And eventually that point where you feel a lot of unpleasant or difficult emotion, you want to feel connected and supported, but people feel they have to, there's a distance between them and those sort of expectations that other people have. So that sort of work, I think, has helped us to see that that value placed on happiness can be problematic. But then on the flip side, for example, when people share, when we share a painful experience with other people that actually leads to a sort of a sense of social bonding. And when we've gone through something difficult, I'm more likely to trust in my teammates, in my group members. We also found that same experience fosters creativity in groups as well, so probably because they're more open and honest as a part of going through a painful experience with others kind of brings you back to baseline a little bit. It's very hard to hold up pretenses if you're in pain. So it's a very sort of grounding and probably authentic experience that people go through. So people often rate their more painful experiences as more meaningful. On the subject of kind of the mental health problems that are associated with these societal changes, and I know you also mentioned the like prevalence of antidepressants at this time, would you say you've seen that there's an increase in the symptoms of depression or anxiety on the like actual diagnoses of this because of this kind of societal culture of trying to force happiness in a sense? Certainly there's been the narrative that mental illness has been on the rise. And there's also some data showing that it might have plateaued to some degree and that's just going up as a percentage of the, the global disease burden. We're not really treating mental health or mental illness as effectively. So in, in the West, the prevalence of mental illness tends to be higher compared to in East Asian cultures. And yet the reporting of negative affect, not surprisingly, is at least the same. So it suggests that people in East Asian cultures are dealing better with some of those, again, Allowing contradiction, not seeing negative and positive emotions as contradictory, you know, things that can coexist. Beliefs around change, that things change and the belief that our emotions change seems to be quite adaptive as well. And seeing the self in context, understanding that my emotional responses are actually in context and they say a lot about my environment. 
versus I think in the West, we tend to feel I say a lot about ourselves and who I am as a person. And I think that way of viewing it through that more East Asian philosophy of the world tends to perhaps actually have a range of factors that we know are based on research are quite good in terms of responding to our negative emotion versus in the West, some of those sorts of responses can be quite counterproductive. So that's a very background sort of analysis of it. But but yeah, I, I think that there are some cultural factors there, definitely. And we see cultural differences in those prevalence rates. Yes. And alongside that on overprescribing or having the expectation of happiness or a pain-free life, we've seen that through the opioid crisis, the overprescribing of opioids and maybe overreporting of pain. And I don't think that patients meant to, but because they were in America, at least the way the insurance system is set up. And I believe yeah. it, that the US consumes over 80% of certain opioids, the oxycontins, mm-hmm. which is huge for having just yeah. 5% of the world's population. So if you go into that and what created the conditions where people are taking certain levels of painkillers for Mm. conditions that don't really require it. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things in there, isn't there? I think on the one hand, our diagnosis, and there is certainly work suggesting that our concept of certain mental illnesses have expanded to incorporate more everyday kind of experiences. And so that does mean that perhaps when I walk in to see a doctor and I start feeling depressed, I might get more easily diagnosed with depression and treated for depression in that medicalized sense compared to perhaps viewing it as a, I mean, depression is also a normal emotion. You know, I guess you've got a big D depression as an illness, you got little d, which is I feel depressed today, which is actually normal. It's actually okay to feel depressed sometimes. Same with anxiety. Anxiety is both a normal emotion and also big A, a diagnosis. So I think that the diagnoses have been expanding a little bit and we've been probably responding to some of those everyday experiences with quicker to medicate them. And of course, that does give people that access. Over time, it's very easy to come to rely on those solutions or to feel that they, and I don't think they are solutions. I think they're kind of, they're very important in some cases. And when people are really at the bottom of the pit of despair, you know, having something that just gives you 10 or 15% is really important because then you can use that to perhaps make some other positive changes in your life that helps to build some of those resources and supports that you need to really function well. And you just don't have the capacity or wherewithal to do that without some medicalized support. So it can play a very important role in that sense, but it's still not a solution. It just gives you what you need to be able to go and find those solutions or build those solutions into your life. Perhaps we have come to see medication as a solution too much. Yes, and sometimes depression or just being aware of the world. I mean, one's immediate situation might be one of happiness, having enough, but that's not the case for everyone. And just being aware of that will cause you to think, wow, this is not a fair world. There is a lot of suffering. Or just thinking about we have a looming environmental crisis. We see a large uptake in people who may be under normal circumstances with a world that's not heading towards 1.5 degree increase in global temperatures since the industrial age. Normal circumstances, they would be happy, but they're aware of that. And so there is anxiety around that. Yeah, that's right. Eco-anxiety. There are some real existential concerns from all of us, really. Some are more affected by it than others. But that certainly a, a, throws up a range of difficult emotions for people to be able to manage and respond to. And I think particularly for young people these days, in some ways, in my book, I probably argued that life is more comfortable than ever has been. And I think it is. I think we have a great deal of comfort in our lives, but we probably do have a range of, of more of these existential concerns. Perhaps that's partly because we have the knowledge to, to leverage our, our concern in a way. I mean, we might not have had quite as much foresight or knowledge to alert us to some of those foresights previously. But it also means that we're dealing with some of these existential concerns about the future.
Exactly, because so often, and I know that you teach on this and you research on the ethics and happiness. So there's a moral dimension in insisting on only our own happiness when we see how yeah. is our happiness or our overconsumption of the resources of the planet affecting other species whose biodiversity is clearly going down sharply. Yeah, that's right. And I guess that's the difference between a broader approach to defining happiness. Sometimes the things that can make us very happy in the short term are not the things that bring us happiness in the long term. Sometimes going through short-term pain in order to have long-term gain is recognising and that's that ethics part is getting people to take that long-term view on their happiness and looking after other people, looking after our relationships, being mindful of some of those components. It's a bit like Paying taxes, you know, we all hate paying taxes because you know, it takes some money out of my back pocket every year. But then if I didn't do that in the long term, the society that I enjoy and the functionality of that society would start to crumble. So being able to take that long term view and seeing the feedback mechanisms in terms of what actually contributes to my happiness in that broader sense, I think is it is part of that ethical way of thinking. And I think it does play an important role in supporting our happiness. And maybe it's, a, again, understanding that connection is critical for thinking about what is sustainable happiness or what's the sort of happiness that we're going to be able to enjoy, not just now and in response to this particular thing, but over time and through our relationships and over our life trajectories. Hello, I am Parker Blumentritt, a junior at Rice University studying English and theatre. I've always been drawn to discovering what makes people happy and why people make the decisions they do, and was intrigued when I first heard about Brock Bastian's research on what makes people really happy. I'm particularly interested in the contrast between eudonic versus hedonic happiness. I'm especially intrigued and the question is, why do people do the things they do? Is it always for their own gain? Or do people choose more painful paths in order to attain long-term gain or gain for others? It is clear that the answer is both. But looking towards social psychology, it is even more clear that there is a greater benefit in the latter for people to choose the hard but rewarding path. I think this idea of choosing the harder but more rewarding path is one of the things that link positive psychology and the arts, because both fields seek to discover or create something that brings meaning and positive impact to people's lives. In both cases, this isn't always something that is easy to do, but something that over time researchers and artists are able to discover through their work. This difficulty relates back to the other side of happiness and how people's lives are more meaningful when they reflect on both the positive and negative aspects of them and the interpersonal connections that they've created through these events. I think this is also why artists, writers, and other creators produce works that focus on such negative parts of their lives, because it helps people connect with each other and fosters empathy and meaning by considering all aspects of the human experience, not just the positive ones. Now back to Mia Funk interviewing social psychologist and author Brock Bastian. And so really what you and your team at your lab do is very important because it's increasing our adaptive intelligence, which is something that we need going forward. We're living through a transformational decade, new things in school, but they say not enough of this adaptive intelligence is what we need to survive and thrive in the future and mm. make these rapid changes that need to take place. That's true. We are going through a period of very fast change in many ways at the moment. So understanding the basis of what constitutes 
good actions? What constitutes, how do I even think about that? What are the frameworks that I need to, to draw on to even consider what constitutes a good action? So that is about ethics. That's about virtue and decision-making in the ethical space. So yeah, we do need that. That plays a very important role in defining what might lead to happiness in helping us to see more clearly what will lead to happiness for us. If we don't look after other people around us, then our happiness is probably going to be short-lived as well. And I often wonder, as you observe animals and apex predators, would you think about how would they answer to, are they happy? You know, they certainly can adapt. <laughs> they certainly can. They have no problem of, where's their painkillers? That's just part of their natural process. I wonder mm. if by the insistence on happiness, we dampen our survival instincts. Interesting question. Are dogs happy? They look like they could be happy sometimes. And apex predators, I don't know. I suspect that animal emotional states and cognition they're probably more complex than we give them credit for often because we do know that anything that looks different or doesn't communicate in the same cadence or ways that we do, we tend to sort of diminish them, how much mind we tend to attribute to those things. So I imagine that their mental lives are probably richer than we give them credit for. Well, I believe that non-human animals are very complex creatures. I just wonder what their expectations of happiness are. I think they're different. You know, there's some people who can't feel pain, they're anomalies. And then there's some that have such a high threshold of pain. We're doing interviews with people people who do extreme sports, just spoke to yeah. the with uh, Alain Robert, the free climber, and he scales enormous skyscrapers. He scaled the Sydney Opera House with his yeah. bare hands, right? And rock faces. Yeah. And, you know, he's had falls. Once he fell, lost 45% of his blood, 66% disabled, a week in a coma, still built himself back up and is still climbing. So you ask them, how can they do that? What is it within them that allows them to just touch those depths and come back? Well, I think what it is within particular individuals who drive themselves into, I suppose, those rather extreme situations. I think probably the, the interesting reflection there is that we all do it to some degree. And I think that's, you know, we can look at these extreme cases and we realize why they're seeking out all this unpleasantness, why they're putting themselves through it. But then if we look at it, our small choices on a day-to-day basis, we're all doing it. We're always looking for a challenge, taking a risk, going in roller coaster rides. I mean, it's really just the induction of fear in a safe environment. We enjoy these experiences. We get pleasure from them. So we're all seeking out a little bit of unpleasantness, pain, challenges, fear, threat, risk in our lives always. And some people just take it to a very particular degree perhaps a long way beyond what most of us would be comfortable doing, but that might be a question, I think, unto itself in terms of who really are big risk takers. But yeah, it's just an example of, I think, really what humans every day are doing to some degree. Yes, and it's the way certain organizations like the military that we're only able to do that because there is training and this collective you spoke about in your research where you bring people together around a painful or experiencing some collective discomfort and then who they think they are, who they portray to the world falls away and they become more truly, you know, we get back to our essence. Maybe you could go into organizational pain, like the military, how they're able to channel and focus I guess the question probably for me there is, again, how, how is it being used? 
in those contexts and why. And and it's often to build commitment to the organisation or the team. People go through training often in very, very difficult scenarios in the army, the military, and that does create a fairly strong commitment to the organisation. It creates a fairly strong set of bonds amongst the team in which a functional and operational sense enables people to be able to deal with some pretty difficult situations in the field. So I think it has a range of functions. Individual resilience building, organisational commitment is probably why it's used. How people maintain a focus in those situations, I think going through some of it in training enables people to be able to respond more adaptively to it, you know, on the field they need to. And those individuals that just feel no pain, it's just fascinating to me. I mean, it means that they have to really manage their risks because they don't feel it. That's right. They have a shorter lifespan than the rest of us, full of injuries. But I mean, look, the, the fact you can panic and feel anxious. I mean, these are the things that that protect you from some of the dangers in the world. So I think that our our negative emotions are actually probably the most functional ones that we have. They're the ones that protect us the most. So I think there's a lot of adaptive value to, to obviously having them. Yeah. And speaking of the collective and the benefits or just the needing to go through these processes, we did in recent times, we've had COVID and that was just a strange time for all. What were you observing? What were your hopes for it? The positive aspects that could come out of it as someone who researches pain? Looking back, you think, wow, I don't know if I was in Victoria, Melbourne, we, we were one of the most locked down cities in the world. So, you know, being stuck in my own house for that long was probably something I couldn't really contemplate beforehand. But, you know, we got through somehow. But yeah, I mean, it did breed community, it bred, it bred connection between people. It was this common threat that we were all needing to respond to and manage together. But there was a point at which it started to do the opposite when we all had a bit too much of it. Actually, it started to sometimes lead to people not necessarily responding well to each other on the street. Or uh, So it had dual effects. It, certainly within particular contexts, it was a sort of a shared dysphoric experience. And I think it did breed some of those connections with people and within groups that perhaps were things we can take away. Yes, people yeah. made adjustments to their behaviours in terms of the environment and different things. And and you speak of values. And I think that there are opportunities and some were able to embrace and and have a sharper focus on their values. And there's a a warning towards what's down the line with the climate crisis. It's very interesting. Then we also experienced the great resignation where people, again, a shift in values or understanding that they want something else from work. (laughs) Just people not going back in terms of this avoidance of pain, we are always seeking perfection. It's linked to the consumer culture where we want more and more and maybe can't deal with having less or just enough. We feel many of us, we can improve our faces, we can improve our bodies, there's neural wet wear, we could, maybe we just improve our brains. I don't know what your reflections are on that. It can sometimes go too far and how we should govern some of those improving technologies. We have CRISPR, Mm. if you want to avoid diseases or things like that, cancers, if you can do that through CRISPR, but there's a point to which we're redefining our humanity. Well, some of the technologies that perhaps I challenged, and I guess that's in, in the book, is that they're thinking we can remove pain altogether through technology. But the more that we uh, augment our humanity, I think what it means to be human is probably a fairly dynamic concept. And so it's probably going to change a little bit over time. It has changed already. But I suppose as we augment things we bring in and things we take out, very important to consider because you might miss the value of some things. And again, you know, as Aldous Huxley pointed to, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, that that capacity to remove our pain it might seem on the surface of things as a good idea, but 
perhaps actually it's not such a good idea. And so we do want to have a fairly good understanding of the basis of human behaviour and what might or might not be actually beneficial in the long, long run for us as we have access to all of these changes, these augmentations that we can we can add to ourselves. And so psychology or therapy has been something that people have turned to in some ways may place the role of religion in their life as religion has become less fashionable. Of course, we still have a lot of people practicing their faith, but there is another element of religion that beyond one's belief in the afterlife, which is bringing people together around these collective rituals, as you mentioned, that are really important and could answer some of these problems about loneliness and depression. So what are your reflections on the role of faith in religion generally? Well, it's important to identify if you're talking as an insider or an outsider. And, and, you know, I think psychology definitely provides an outsider perspective on religion. And I think it's that's not the same as an insider perspective. But from an outsider perspective, it has a function in terms of helping people perhaps to deal with some of those existential threats, just our own fear of our own mortality, for example. Religion has helped us to sort of feel that there's something beyond us and beyond our own life which I think has been important. It's probably, again, it plays a, a range of roles in social coordination, the idea there's a God, genders, cooperation and pro-social behaviour, the idea there's eternal punishment does that too. So there's a range of, I think, functions in terms of what religion, from a psychological perspective, what religion does. And I think psychology has, in a sense, it does compete a little bit in that space. And I guess psychology does kind of have that sort of outsider perspective on religion a bit. You know, as you think about the future and the kind of world that we're leaving the next generation and education and important teachers are life lessons for you, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think probably that there, there has been a shift in some of our values in, in particularly in Western context, I think in societies which have been a little defined, overdefined by probably market capitalism and therefore consumerism, I don't think these things have been particularly good for our well-being or our happiness. I think it's led to focus on success and standing out. And I do think that the more that young people can walk away with an understanding that perhaps the best thing they can do in life is actually contribute to the lives of others. And that's probably where they're going to get most of their happiness from and most of their fulfillment from. And the rest is probably a little bit hollow. You know, money doesn't really buy happiness. I mean, it certainly buys comfort. And we do know some money is very important for that. But you do need to feel connected to other people. And you can't, whilst consuming and, and even promoting ourselves on social media or playing the popularity game or aiming to be famous, that seems to be a value that a lot of young people have these days, which again is only just a, I think, a, a kind of outcome of being exposed to a lot of media, which would suggest that that seems to be something that's very important. But I don't think that... It's going to breed happiness. And so being able to really identify what the values are that are going to make us happy, that are going to connect us to meaning and purpose in other people, and that will actually contribute to a better world for all of us, I think would be great. And I, I think there's a little bit of that. There's a bit of competition in that space for young people's minds at the moment. So if we can, if we can get them on board with some of those sorts of values and approaches to life, I think, well, the future generations will be better off. Thank you, Brock Bastian, for sharing your values and your insights into happiness and helping us understand the meaning of feeling connected to other people and understanding the pain in our lives so that we can regain a sense of joy and live lives of greater purpose and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks, Mia. Thanks for having me. 
The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Parker Blumentritt with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Parker Blumentritt, Digital Media Coordinator with Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.